You're listening to the American Alpine Club podcast, your guide to the climbing community. Welcome to the first episode of our Undercover Crusher series, where the AAC talks to some of the hidden gems of the climbing community, those climbers who are hitting big numbers under the radar, but also crushing in a different sense, contributing to their community in big ways. In our first episode, we're talking to a prolific developer and local West Virginia crusher, Andrew Like, who's based out of the area of West Virginia that's also undercover, the bouldering and climbs of Cheat Canyon and Morgantown. We talked to Andrew about the rock to die for around this area and his projects, including a massive Endurofest double-digit sloper boulder and a clean crimping 14B at the historic Seneca Rocks. We dive into developing, the trouble with grading, wrestling rhododendrons, land use ethics when developing, writing a comprehensive guidebook for the exploding rock in the region, and more. We recorded this episode in early 2023. Since then, a lot has happened in Andrew's life. Andrew was bitten by a timber rattlesnake this summer, ultimately experiencing temporary body paralysis and nearly dying. Just prior to this accident, Andrew had completed the first ascent of Chiasmus 512- as a free solo, and then established one of the hardest boulders in Cooper's Rock, the Pain Box, at V10. As he says, quote, nothing cutting edge, but it highlighted the dramatic effect of the bite. After a month after the snake bite, after Andrew could walk again, he tried to climb and found that his new limit was V0. He slowly worked back up to V7, including developing some new first ascents, of course, but is still having significant breathing and neurological issues. On the flip side, this downtime as he's been recovering has afforded him the time to finish the sport and try climbing guidebook to Cheat Canyon, West Virginia, that we talk about in this episode. And you can find your own copy at CheatCanyonRock.com. The area is a great destination for those in surrounding cities like Pittsburgh, D.C., and Cleveland. The guidebook, while being a route guide, also does cover the details of the bubble wrap wall, what he hopes people will come to see as one of the premier boulders in America. He'll be following up this route guide with two more guidebooks on bouldering in the region, as there are just too many boulders for one. I'm your host, Hannah Provo. Here's the beta. Presented by Adidas Terex, a global leader in the outdoor sporting goods industry. With the mission to enable all humans to live a more connected, conscious, and adventurous life, Adidas Terex combines high-performance technologies with fashion-forward designs to weather the forces of nature and inspire every human being to find their own summits. Since 1981, Outdoor Research has created trusted apparel, accessories, and equipment for you to thrive outside. Their award-winning outdoor gear is meticulously researched and tested for outdoor enthusiasts and military users around the globe. Grounded in their values of curiosity, passion, innovation, collaboration, and community, OR strives to create space for all in the outdoors. OR celebrates wins outside at every level together with their ambassadors, nonprofit partners, and employees. Check them out at outdoorresearch.com. I get so on that note, tell me a little bit about what you're project projecting today. Uh, yeah, so it's it's called the bubble wrap boulder. It's uh, just this weird anomaly of the boulder that we found in the woods here and it's uh very similar to like the horse pens type like kind of yeah like kind of massive slopers yeah kind just of, right? like big giant slopers but the difference is that it's it's 40 degrees overhanging <laughs> and it's about uh i don't know the lines are like 30 to 40 feet long wow. um so there's these mega endurance things and what's unique about it is that while you're, you're doing these sloper compression moves none of the moves are harder than like v8 so you can do like 30 moves of v8 in a row and get just like stupid pumped. Yeah. And so the grades just compound and you know, all these different variations. There's still a lot of different projects on it, but I've been just sieging the boulder for like the last three years, I think. I, I've had to do, I, I've probably done at least 80 sessions on this particular one. Yeah. That I was working today. Yeah. Yeah. It gave me the beat down today though. Oh no. Yeah. I was, I was really convinced that I could at least low point it today, like start yeah. from a few moves in because the yeah. first couple of moves were wet. And, uh, 
didn't happen. No. It didn't happen. <laughs> and, and how did you find it? Is this something you stumbled across or somebody show you? Yeah. So this is a really cool story, actually. So when I started climbing, I moved here. I was, I was really into playing hockey. I wanted to do that as a career. I wanted to, to push that. And I wasn't quite at the level I needed to be. So I went to school. It was, it was kind of like, oh, you know, be a fourth liner and like maybe have a chance doing minors or go to school. So I went to school, started climbing. And my first year, we heard about some local guy that had bolted a route locally. And we were like, oh, cool. Let's go check it out. And he gave us the coordinates. And we walked out there and spent forever trying to find it and got beat up on it. And it's on the back of this boulder. It's a big slab on the back. It has the same like bubbly features. It's like a 511C or something, I think he said. I mean, we couldn't do it because we were brand new climbers. But I remember seeing this wall, the bubble wrap wall, and being like, wow, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen on a rock face. But too bad. It's impossible. There's no way. There's no way that's possible. Slopers on that angle. And then I was like, well, you know, maybe like Sharma could do it or something. But it's probably not possible. <laughs> and we kept like looking like, where are all the holes? And we'd be like, there's a hole there. And there's a hole like 30 feet away up there. And, you know, what I deemed a hold at that time was like very different from what I consider a hold now, <laughs> 10 years later. So anyway, fast forward like three or four years. I had finished school and I was like, man, I want to I wanna find a project here. Like a really something I can dedicate myself to. And I remembered this line and I hiked out to it. And... Uh, that was when I met my friend Danny. I turned a corner and like literally almost ran into each other, um, which surprised me. There was nobody in the parking lot. There was, I was the only car there. So I, I wasn't expecting to see people. But anyway, we got to talking. He was like, oh yeah, I know all these other crags and, you know, gave me coordinates and things. And we started bolting together and that's, that's how the whole explosion happened. But I went originally to go check out that boulder and on that particular hike, I still deemed it impossible. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't until three years after that, that I had mentioned it to a friend. He was like, oh man, this, this whole thing is possible. What are you talking about? And then we all started going after it. <laughs> nice. Now, does it feel possible? Like, do you feel it's like- It's very possible now. I mean, I've done three of the lines on it now. Mm -hmm. They're the easier ones. They're like the 11s or something, mm -hmm. but there's some harder ones that are, they still feel overwhelming, but I can do the moves. So I know that they're- Doable, yeah, you know? just gotta string it together. Yeah, yeah, that is the problem. <laughs> yeah, and it's more than just strength is the, is the issue because it's all slopers. There's all these weird heel hooks and toe hooks, and the style is really unique. You can't really prepare for it in the gym or anywhere else. And so, you you'll fall not just for fitness. You'll fall for like weird foot slips or your toe hooks are in the wrong spot or just all these weird jams and stuff that you. There's a lot of techniques involved. Yeah, and like also hamstring strength. Like <laughs> there's that. You know? <laughs> there's so many bizarre things uh, about it that mm -hmm. make it unique i could certainly like invest half the time doing a different project in a similar grade and probably do it you know yeah. but this one is like it's so much more incredible looking yeah i mean it's i've seen pictures time. it's gorgeous it's worth the time yeah definitely yeah and so so i guess we're gonna probably get into this a little <laughs> more but i'm so intrigued to know like how kind of the under wraps development scene happens like is it really just like a kind of like you know everyone mostly probably who's developing in the area you mm -hmm. you have their contacts and you guys just chat and then eventually once it's pretty well established it moves on to mountain project or like kind of what's the ethos of like sharing versus keeping things under wraps like where where's the line there yeah i've never been too much into like keeping things a secret i know i'm, I'm sounding like i'm contradicting myself because this particular boulder we haven't like thrown out on the internet yet because there's still a lot of work to be done on it and we want to give everybody a chance first, everybody that's been putting the effort in, mm -hmm. you know, but we want to like make sure the trails are nice and make sure it's like ready for the, the traffic that it would receive, right. you know, mm -hmm. but I think the development here happened more by necessity. I think it was a little different than other areas. So we have this like overwhelming amount of rock, particularly in bouldering. And it's so close to town, which is what's unique about it. Is, you know, I can finish work at five and, and, be climbing 10 minutes later. Mm -hmm. And most areas even that are climbing hotspots don't really have that. And because we didn't have the gym for the longest time and now we don't have the gym again, there was no way to climb and get better unless you went and found your own projects. Mm -hmm. And uh, because of its proximity to the New River Gorge and Seneca Rocks, mostly the proximity to the New River, New River Gorge, people that were developing here in like the 80s found the New River Gorge and just flocked there, which makes sense because there's way more to do there. Yeah. So then everything that was, you know, 512 and up or harder than V7 was pretty much untapped. And it was like, if you want to get better, you got to go find your 
find your project or bolt your project here. And that's why there's been more development here. And that's that's where it's been different from other from other places. Yeah, like I feel like this is maybe kind of the truest microcosm of what it was like in the 80s because there were so few climbing gyms. So you really did just have to go find climbing in order to climb and you had to develop in order to climb and kind of in the same situation. And we're going to get into the whole gym going out of business thing later. But yeah, like you guys didn't have a gym for the longest time. Then you had a gym for a brief moment, you know? Yeah. yeah, So now you're just gotta, you gotta find real rock in order to climb. Yeah. I mean like the, out of the 10 years I've been climbing, I've only had a gym for like two. Yeah. It's all been like hangboarding and local climbing. Yeah. We had a little wall at the, um, the rec center at the university. Um, and they had like a, a little woody under the staircase, literally under the staircase and a campus board. Um, and their campus board setup was really nice. And for a while, that little woody was like getting a strong, but it had a really limiting, there there was a point where it was limiting. You couldn't really push it much further. They didn't have very, very many holes or anything. So, And then once you graduate, you can't use it anymore. So. Yeah. Gatekeeping. <laughs> so yeah. In those universities. Okay. So let's back up. This is yeah. Andrew Like of Morgantown fame. Um, <laughs> you are developing a bunch in the area, right? And both boulders and sport climbing? Well, all of it. Yeah. All of it. I, any any style. Yeah. Ice climbing too. Yeah. Sick. Okay. I'm so excited to get into all of that. Can you yeah. give us more? I mean, you just kind of told me a little bit about how you got into climbing, but tell me about how you got into climbing and then kind of your progression. What, what did it mean to you at first and what does it mean to you now? Yeah, that's a good question. I think at first it was more like, it was like this subtle rebellion a little mm-hmm. bit. I think, I think, uh, just most teenagers have some sort of angst and I think this is just how it came out. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like, you know, I was, a, I was a pretty straight edge kind of kid and I've always been that way, but I think, uh, just the strict academics and it, the rigorous schedule I was in in high school was kind of, I just wanted to break free from that. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed that. I wasn't limited by what team I was on or what coach I had or what, you know, as it was with other sports, I could just try as hard as I want whenever I want. And so I liked being able to have that freedom. And that's when it just kind of like clicked for me. I'm definitely going to do this all the time. So when I came here, that was certainly in the back of my mind as part of a decision. I went to school here because I knew that Cooper's Rock was close by. I was like, this is awesome. I can go climb after school. I can, I have this little, you know, this little dinky little gem that we have in the rec center that, that I can use. And then the progression was quite fast because I had been training a lot, playing hockey. And so I had a lot of, uh, I had a strong fitness base. And so, you know, within a few months, I was climbing like V8 or something. But then it took a long time to actually transition that outside and like really figure out how it all works. Yeah. Have you kind of always been a boulder first? No, no, absolutely not. Yeah. No, (laughs) no, that's what's funny is, yeah. So you're, uh, you're meeting me here like as I'm obsessing over this one project. Yeah. That's just because it's winter and that's what we do in the winter. Yeah. No, I, I climb more seasonally. I, I would actually prefer like trad climbing or, or big wall multi-pitch type stuff. Cool. We don't really have that here. So no. <laughs> um, there's a few multi-pitch routes in West Virginia that are pretty cool, but most of the stuff is pretty small. And even the multi-pitch routes for the most part are like, you know, maybe you do one easy pitch and then there's one cool pitch and then it's easy after that. But most of that's all West. So I end up just kind of climbing seasonally, like bouldering the winter, sport trad in the spring, and then in the summer I'll come up with some stupid challenge for myself. That'll probably be out west. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, cool. I guess a little bit more on the getting to know Andrew element. Who do you think has been the most meaningful climbing partner in your life, or one of like? It doesn't have to be you know like literal belay partner if they're a bouldering buddy, but like who do you think has been one of the really impactful climbing partners you've had? Tell us about that. Yeah, I've had several, but uh, Danny Roand for sure was a big part of that because I initially met him when I had moved back to Morgantown after college and when I was starting to learn to develop and he'd like coached me through a lot of that and showed me a lot of things that he'd already found and a lot of projects that he saw as doable that he thought maybe I should go and try. So he, he gave me a lot of, he gave me a lot of projects that he had just put in all the work for already and just like as a mentor just like as a life mentor he's just a really solid dude Mm -hmm. really uh really strong man of god really like you know takes uh morality really seriously and really wants to 
help people as mm-hmm. much as possible. So he was really giving and just like gave away his gear, like, you know, would give me bolts, like here, go bolt this project. And so that was really cool. And then uh, recently I've been teaming up with Joel Brady quite a lot, who I just kind of on a whim contacted to try to do Horseshoe Hell several years ago. And then I don't think he realized or his wife realized what that was going to be a lifetime commitment that <laughs> he was getting signed up for. So now we're both like way too obsessed and we do that every year. And since then we've been sharing different projects locally and, and around, you know, recently we, uh, we bolted pre magic in the Hills at Seneca rocks together, which he did the first ascent in October. Mm-hmm. I'm still working on it. It's pretty hard for me. Yeah. But this project on bubble wrap boulder, we also helped develop together. There was some, um, we call it the feathers and wonders projects because you have to chop a boulder off the base to be able to like make a landing for it. Yeah. So there's some, some work involved with that. So anyway, we've been um, quotes partners since then as well. Cool. Tell me more about the Seneca rocks mm-hmm. project. Yeah, that thing was wild. Um, so basically again, very funny story because Joel and I couldn't be more polar opposites. Like he's this tall, lanky dude that just destroys little crimpy climbs and I'm like this short, beefy guy that really likes crack climbing and any like kind of burly type moves. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we climb with totally opposite styles. Uh, he is, he's been climbing for like 25 years or something, really long time and uh, has a really strong base, but wasn't really trad climbing or doing multi-pitch or anything. Um, and so I had uh, my first experience at Seneca, I don't remember what year it was, 2016 maybe. And I got really psyched and I, I went and like, I soloed like 40 pitches that day. I just like showed up and did a bunch of all the easy things. <laughs> I got really excited. Okay, but and, easy stuff in Seneca is not easy. Oh, it it's like all ones. sandbag. Yeah, I found out which one was <laughs> sandbag. I mean, I stayed on easy stuff. I was, I was well within my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, I had done this, this root green wall, which is my favorite one. I, I would always finish my day at Seneca soloing a lap on green wall. It's like a famous 5.7. It's probably... The, the best section of wall, like the cleanest, hardest rock quality uh, there. And so every time I did it, I kept looking to the left on this blank face and was like, what is this? This is definitely the coolest face here if there was a line on it. It's kind of this glaring white, like marble type rock. It has a much higher uh, quartzite content, I guess. And so it makes the rock harder and, and brighter looking. And there was an aid route that went up it. And I kept seeing these holds and my friend took pictures of me one day and I I zoomed in and I was like, I see holds on this. Like I showed it to Joel and I was like, dude, I see holds. We should go and look at it. And so his first experience going to Seneca, having never climbed anything at Seneca, like total sport climber showing up, like I have to show him how to do a close hitch and everything. And like, we're going to go bolt this thing. And of course, if you've been to Seneca, there's a sign in the, in front of the parking lot that says, you know, this is a traditional rock climbing area. Think twice before bolting. They <laughs> were like, oh my gosh, this is ridiculous. So we go up there at like 10 o'clock at night after everybody's gone and sink the bolts in because we, we were afraid somebody was going to chop it or something. And we had talked to the locals and they were they were mostly cool with it, you know, but we were still afraid somebody was going to chop it. And um, anyway, we sunk the bolts in and we were done at like midnight and then came to start trying it. And uh, We tried it through the summer and it pretty much just gave me the beat down the whole time, but Joel started making good progress and, and he was able to do it in October. Is it mostly a crampy line then? Oh yeah, it's just like death crimping. <laughs> it's, it's awful. Yeah, it's yeah, it's pretty hard for me. But uh, I'm I'm close. I don't know. I'll come back for it. Yeah. I had to call it for the season because it started getting too cold and I couldn't find partners. And but in the spring, probably. Hell yeah. 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 So it anyway, it was just a funny story because you know I had worked my way through the grades there. I'd like I'd done the bell. I'd done like the test species at Seneca, and I was like, okay, now this is the next step. And, and Joel shows up, and it's just never climbed any of the routes there hasn't gotten like pummeled on the five eights yet like everybody i feel like needs to mm-hmm. you know he's like let's just go bolt this thing and you know in a classic fashion leaves all the bolting gear in the parking lot <laughs> after we leave because he got really sick on the wall like hanging in the harness and was like puking and stuff afterwards oh, no. and then and then left all the gear in the parking lot and we showed up the next day to climb and some of the guys were like uh, there was a bag left with a bunch of bolting gear. Like, oh my gosh, that's the most incriminating thing. Yeah. Like we did this at night so we could avoid this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. That was awesome. Yeah, it's great. So how did you, how did you first start getting into developing? Like, do you remember what the first thing you developed or 
what the first thing you have to eat. I know, I mean, they're different. Mm -hmm. So that's a good question. Actually, I did a Knowles course in like 2012, and I think we did the first ascent on that. Oh, cool. Um, we just like wandered up some random spire in in the winds. Yeah. But that wasn't intentional. That was just because we happened to be there. <laughs> I was just following, you know. But most of the developing was really just. It was really after I met Danny. That was like the main the main catalyst uh, there because I was no longer in school here. I didn't have access to that um, to my beloved little Woody. Yeah. Um, under the stairwell in the university rec center. And uh, I kind of just needed something harder to work on. Cooper's Rock, if you've climbed here, you know, it kind of tops out at V5. And V5 can mean many things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the same way that like 5.9 can mean a lot of things. Yes. Seneca. Yeah, yeah. Um, very similar. So anyway, after like V7 or something, it fizzles out and, and you kind of need some you got to need to do some brushing and, and exploring to find some stuff. So Danny was able to kind of point me in the right direction. Of like some stuff you've seen before? Kind of yeah, different roots. And I, I was mostly into developing roots and doing boulders more now because the roots are starting to kind of get get all, all done. You mm -hmm. know, we're kind of finding all of them. So we're kind of running out of projects. Yeah. But um, Did you start yeah. with Coopers and then kind of expand more to like Cheek Canyon more generally? <laughs> no, actually Coopers gave me the beat down all the time and it kind of bugged me. So I wanted to get something with a totally fresh perspective. Mm -hmm. And I really liked just finding something that no one's ever touched and just like, it doesn't have a grade, doesn't have any any connotations attached to it. I'm just gonna climb it and, and see what happens. And that was way more fun for me. So Snake Hill was a lot of the original developing that I was doing. And Danny and my friend Chris Egris had done some of that stuff as well. Um, and they'd done some of the 5.9 to 5.11 stuff. And there was a lot of 5.12 and a few 5.13 left. Um, so we were kind of picking away at those. Uh, and then we found some other things. Uh, there's a local area called Army Rocks. And that one isn't like officially public mm -hmm. at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, we work, the coalition's working on that. But we started finding some things there and a few other spots around. And uh, more recently, an area sort of within Cooper's, not really Cooper's proper, an area called Solar Slabs Crag. It's gone over several different names by different generations of climbers in the past, but we uh, got it officially opened with a, a new like state park trail going there. And cool. So yeah, that was one of our one of our bigger successes that we've had here through the coalition. Yeah, yeah. Tell me yeah. about what's your exactly is your role with the Cheek Canyon Coalition Climbers Coalition? Mm -hmm. Is that CTCC? <laughs> yeah, CTCC. Yeah, it's getting really confusing, especially since there's the Carolina Climbers Coalition, mm -hmm. which is CCC. Yeah, so. Basically, once that development started happening and kind of growing to the point where we realized there's going to be more and more people coming and we want to make sure we're ready for that, I got in contact with Access Fund. I got in contact with a bunch of other people. I got in contact with Joel through this issue, actually, because he's the president or was the president of Southwest PA Climbers Coalition. Cool. They're so close to us. I was like, hey, you want to help us out here? And he was like, no, I can't really help you out, but I can come climb your projects. <laughs> so that's how we teamed up. But uh, anyway, Access Fund basically just encouraged me. Like, you kind of just have to start your own LCO if you want to do anything. So we got that started and gathered a few other local climbers and got a little bit of momentum. And we've mostly just done a few trail days here and there. It hasn't been a huge operation. But, you know, our biggest success, like I said, was our opening of the Solar Slabs Crag and Coopers. So I'm really happy that we have a new area that, has like nice parking, nice trail. It's definitely protected on public land and will stay that way. Yeah, we, we still have a lot of other projects though that are needing to be worked on, but mm -hmm. I think it's a never ending list really. Right, yeah, and you're yeah. just gonna, and you're gonna find more areas and you're gonna wanna develop new Maybe, stuff. yeah. I actually counted it one time. There was like, I think there was 77 crags or something, or maybe 80. In like the, the Morgantown vicinity? Within 20 miles of Morgantown. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but they're all really small. That's the thing. It sounds way more overwhelming than it is. Mm -hmm. They'll all have like three to five roots on them, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I think there's like 600 some roots I have. I'm working on a guidebook too. So right. That's why I have all these numbers in my head. That's so awesome. So, yeah. But the boulders are really what's, that's really the main attraction here, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. the sport climbing, I mean, I've heard the sport climbing is very fun, but it's quite short. Is that accurate? Yeah. It's really short. Yeah. There's one cliff that has a couple of two catch roots. Ooh. It's really tall. Mm -hmm. But, that one is private. So oh, okay. Feels, yeah, really sad. That one has a whole other access issue that we're working through. Some like 
what's the word? Some disgruntled local just like posted it and claimed that the land is his. Um, oh. The land is not actually his. We know who actually owns the land and contacted them. Mm-hmm. But this disgruntled local will threaten to shoot you if you go there. Oh. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're yeah. working through that. Not just if you go there, if you park there to access Snake Hill, which is public land, he will threaten you. Yeah. So that's the uh, big problem with West Virginia is people are really standoffish about land. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, sounds like you're doing the work. And I, I guess I'm interested in maybe anything else you have to say about kind of like the developer vibe, the culture among the developers in the area, but also kind of what is the climbing scene in general like here? It's really small. So prior to the gym, there was like five people, you know, and of those five people, there was like three of them that got out consistently and the other couple were, you know, maybe they had families or whatever, but it wasn't as easy for them to get out. And so it was really small. And then recently with the gym, there's been a few more people involved in developing and in developing. Yeah. Um, So like Zach Tanner, Ray Weber, Dylan Griffith, Mike Brown, they've been, um, doing a lot of stuff specifically in bouldering. They've been really psyched on that and really like working, filling in all the gaps in all the bouldering areas that had been overlooked yeah. in the past. But like I said, it was mostly out of necessity. You know, there's, you know, I couldn't go just travel around all the time. I didn't have enough time off to just climb anywhere and chase the weather. Mm-hmm. And so it was, you know, find a project with a roof that stays dry or, mm-hmm. you know, go and clean something else, bolt something else. That was... That was the way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So, it was, yeah, mostly by necessity, really. Yeah. Tell me about So, Dylan's the slab wizard, right? Yeah. He's a, he's what is wizard. up with him? Tell me about this. Yeah. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's a good question. What is up with him? So, just like for listeners, he yeah, loves slab. He, like, is exclusively puts up slab boulders, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, like, hard slab boulders. Yeah. Well, okay. So, when I met him, he said, well, I, you know, I only like climbing slab because I don't have the strength to do, like, steep stuff. And I was like, all right, whatever. Like everybody says that when they start climbing. Like, okay. Yeah, I just kind of dismissed it as like, you know, he's just kind of like a new climber. Like he'll learn. Mm-hmm. And um, no, he was dead serious. He only liked to do slab climbs. So he only did slab climbs. And what was funny about it was that because it doesn't take so much power to climb a hard slab, you you can progress really quickly as soon as you get the technique. So he really got his technique dialed really quickly. And within like two years, he's climbing like V10. Yeah. <laughs> It was a really uh, strange way to approach climbing progression. But yeah. I just like, ignore other disciplines and do only one. But you, that is how you get really good at things. Yeah. And he does he does climb other things too now, but mostly Especially. focused on the on the slabs. Yeah. yeah. His weapon of choice. Yeah. Unfortunately, my my weapon of choice is all things that aren't around here, like cracks and roofs. Yeah. There's not very many of either. But there's a lot of slabs here that were overlooked and filled moss and lichen so if you really put the work in then you could get all kinds of new lines up mm-hmm. so i think that's what he was going for when did um so gritstone was the gym when did mm-hmm. it first pop up like when did it open yeah so gritstone opened was it september august or september of 2020 okay not that long ago not that long ago yeah right and you were a headsetter there yeah i just started off sitting there and got bumped up eventually to the headsetting role and I really loved it. It was amazing. It was amazing having access to a gym for one. I was I was always really grateful of that because I, for so long, didn't have access to a gym mm-hmm. of any kind. There was just the hangboard and whatever I could bolt. So yeah, that was a huge blessing. But what was really awesome about it was it was bringing in more climbers and building the community because for a while, like I said, it was like maybe five people and it started to grow and started to grow. And, and right when it was really starting to grow, it was when it closed. And that was really sad and i'm really hoping that those people that were growing and they're climbing are going to try to take it outside and make use of the resources we have because it, it's overwhelming i mean like i said it's something like 650 routes within 20 minutes of town and the boulders we haven't even bothered counting because it's way too overwhelming right. <laughs> thousands and thousands but you know let's hope that we can get it open one of these days there's there's a big push to get it open in the background going on so mm-hmm. yeah definitely yeah. excited about that uh, like the way the community i've heard the community has come together yeah both through the gym and like for the gym yeah and people that aren't climbers too they, they saw the benefit of it for the region i mean there's you know a huge problem with drugs in west virginia and poverty and all these things it, it's really hard to be involved with that stuff when you're spending 
eight hours at the gym, you know, cause that's what happens if you, you know, you're a kid, you get psyched about climbing, you show up at the gym and you just hang out there all day. You do your homework, you climb, you, you pet the dog, whatever. Yeah. You just hang out there all day. I mean, that's what I did when I started climbing, just hang out there all day and uh, keeps, keeps people out of trouble really well. So I really hope that we can get that back in our community. If, if for no other reason, if, at least for that. Yeah. Yeah. I know like so many people that would, no matter what it was, substance abuse or something else, like climbing saved them in some way. Mm-hmm. And like, I think that's, that isn't like, it doesn't have to be that for everyone, but it could be right. So it should be yeah. an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Way more healthy outlet. Yeah. And I think just, there's a big push to, to build West Virginia as like an ecotourism state mm. because we have the resources that other states have that that build their economy off that you know like colorado and stuff maybe we don't have quite the resource they do but you know similar we have an overwhelming amount of outdoor resource and um you know not just climbing we have some of the best white water in the world and mountain biking and i mean there's still whole climbing areas that we haven't developed and not just like one crag here like whole areas that could have a guidebook by themselves mm. you know yeah and just there's a lot of stuff here that hasn't been tapped that's so exciting, probably. It is, yeah. It is. It comes with its own challenges, though. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of work. Yeah. You know? What's um, something you were particularly proud of developing? Interesting. Ooh, let me think. Oh, in, a lot of the my favorite routes are ones that like no one's ever repeated mm-hmm. um, or no one's ever gone back to, or they might just be like totally covered in moss now. Mm-hmm. So I'd have to think on that. Let's see. I mean, I, I'm pretty... I'm pretty happy to have contributed to this line at Seneca that Joel and I bolted together. I really liked that that was like a team project we worked on together and we both contributed our own beta and our own styles to it. And, you know, I, I still haven't finished that. I'd like to finish that off, but I really am happy to have contributed a line like that. Cause I think that's, I think that's going to be like one of the legendary sport routes in, in America once it's done or once it's done, it's been done once, once it gets more popular. Mm-hmm. You know, similar to routes like to bolt or not to be, maybe it doesn't have the history of it, but it's it's an iconic route, and I'm I'm really proud to have contributed that. So I, I really hope that that gets some more action that people can enjoy that. And I think this bubble wrap boulder, while I didn't do many first ascents on it, I'm really grateful to have contributed part of that process in developing the routes there. I, I did do one of the the boulders there called Ego Terrorism, which is a really tall. V7, and I would argue one of the best V7s around here, as well as some of the roots on the back that everybody's ignored. <laughs> so I'm calling out everybody else that all the boulders are going there to do this hard boulder, and they don't do the trad line on the back. That's really, really cool too. Yeah, I, I think those are the, the areas I'm most proud of contributing to. But my favorite route that I've developed is called Reverse the Curse, and it's over in the Snake Hill area, and it's only had a couple of ascents, but I don't know, it just climbs really well. I really like it. Just some really weird, unique movement that is rare to find like what yeah. uh it starts off on some friction slab stuff and you have to do like a funky match on a pocket you could do like the the shadow match or ghost match where you like switch or if you're really delicate you can kind of do a really delicate piano match on it and then you switch a rats and you start just doing this endurance tic-tac climbing on crimps oh cool um, and for here it's interesting because it's tall-ish it's like 75 feet which for here is tall yeah um, mm-hmm. <laughs> But it just climbs very well. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a, a variation of styles that I like. It's probably covered in moss now. <laughs> Somebody should go and scrub it and, and do it. Yeah, yeah. it's like it's, it does seem like the revenge of the moss. Like the yeah. top of I did. I don't even know if you heard this. Um, Ganja block in mm-hmm. Darnell. Yeah, yeah. Before, did you develop that or did you just add it to Mountain Project? Probably just added it. There, okay. A, a uh, there was a crew back in the day. Let's see. Doug Downs, Jeff Bonai, a few a few people were working on that area, mm-hmm. and I only did a couple of first ascents in that line, and, and it's it's debatable even if I did do those first. Yeah, there's some old topos. Yeah, there's some old topos. Actually, I've always wondered if I if I did the FA of the yoke on the left side, which is kind of like I think the the prime line on that boulder. It's like a V ten ish thing on the left, maybe V nine, mm-hmm. and there's an old topo that has it has written like five stars V10, but I don't know if anybody at that time was climbing V10 in this area. So yeah. we've, all, we've always wondered like who actually did the first assignment. But anyway, people should go check it out. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I was not the main developer of that. I know that top of that boulder was like a carpet 
It is currently very mossy also. On the top? <laughs> yeah. No, it was, it had like a full carpet and pulled it off in one giant sheet. Oh my God. And yeah, so it, it's like this clean slab right now compared yeah. to what it was. Yeah. That's Sometimes you get that <laughs> where you pull on one rhododendron and like the whole thing comes off. <laughs> yeah. Revenge of the forest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's been a lot of uh, rotocide. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So can you, I think for a lot of people developing this like kind of a mystery, you know, they kind of show up at the established crags and then, you know, they just, they climb and climb. And especially as climbing has gotten really popular. And I think a lot of newer climbers want to feel really safe. And so they go to really established areas. Right. So because of that, like developing can kind of be a mystery. Can you like walk with me through the process, like from start to finish? Either yeah. with an example or just kind of generally. Yeah. First off, I think no one wants to have fun. That's why they don't. <laughs> that's why they don't do it because fun takes too much work. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I get it. Like, it's it's nice to just show up and climb. But I think if you want to have a little bit more memorable experience and a little bit more adventure, you'll enjoy seeking out the new stuff. But the problem is, there's not really a good way to get into it unless you kind of just meet somebody to mentor you. That's the challenge. Yeah. because there's not much regulation regarding bolts, you know, how to clean routes, how to develop trails, things like that. Most of that stuff just across the country is done kind of under the radar. And then, oh, like, whoops, we found this crag that has bolts on it. Like, can we open it up? You know, that's kind of that's kind of how it happens. I think in the future, it's not going to work that way. I think there's going to be more more negotiating with land managers and more like doing things the right way, mm-hmm. <laughs> how it should be done. And I'm hoping that with, with organizations like AMGA and, you know, more guides and more information out there in gyms, I'm hoping that bolting will become something that is at least has more information out there for people to you know check whether a bolt is safe, know how to replace a bolt. There should be people in the community, in each community that, mm-hmm could do that that you could approach with that um, that's my hope but but honestly I, th- I think people don't get into it unless they're really lucky enough to just find somebody that can mentor them unless they're just scrubbing boulders that's its own thing you don't really need much to scrub a boulder mm-hmm. but to actually develop a route you really need a good mentor yeah um, yeah i wish i had a better better answer for that because i there's a lot of people that i'm sure want to do that mm-hmm. and they don't know where to go yeah um, i feel like that i mean Yes, there is just generally, I think, a mentorship gap in climbing. Like, also, like, I think a lot of people learn how to multi-pitch online. And you're like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, but I do wonder if maybe kind of, like, that's just a plug for LCOs, right? Like, go find the people who are so deeply embedded in your local community that they're, like, involved in some organization to protect climbing. Mm-hmm. They probably, that's where you're going to find somebody who's developing, who has been around for 20 years and like really knows what they're doing and pester them so much that they become your mentor or something, yeah. you know? No, I agree. I think that's part of the importance of having an LCO around is having that information or having a source of that information, you know, having a source of mentorship and, and somebody that can look at an area and be like, oh, these bolts need to be replaced or, or have the topos and be like, oh, this was replaced in this date and we need to check this one because otherwise nobody's going to do it. Like it, it's... Climbing has been very self-policing, which is really interesting. Yeah, It's like this totally self-policing sport or entity. And it just, it does its own thing, which I think is really cool. But in order for that to sustain itself, it, it needs to have some sort of structure. Yeah, I think the, the LCO thing is the next, uh, the next step in making that more long-term, mm-hmm. making sure that the things are taken care of in the community, you know? Mm-hmm. The gyms as well have a huge responsibility. And uh, I've really got this interesting insight working at Gridstone, uh, seeing the influx of new climbers and they don't know where to go outside. They don't know if they go outside. It's not their fault. They just haven't before. Yeah. So I found it really important to make sure they have the opportunity to come and, and, and that they can approach you and, and do it. Because sometimes people that are new, they feel like they can't approach, mm-hmm. you know, the headsetter at the gym and be like, hey, can I come climb with you or whatever? You know, I think that's a shame. Yeah. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, I can ramble on oh, a long yeah. time. We can climbing. do all the rambling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I um, saw this as an opportunity to do all the rambling. 
My wife doesn't like hearing all the rambling. Oh, like, after climbing Diego, she doesn't actually want to know how my climbing day went. She's just being nice. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> she doesn't awesome. want to hear about me complaining. Oh, well, my skin is no good and the conditions. And... Is she a climber? Or no? no, not really. No. Okay. No. Yeah. She puts up with it pretty well. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so many directions we could go in. I'm interested in yeah. your thought process for grading. Oh, this is always a fun topic because everybody <laughs> says it doesn't matter, but it kind of does. But right. at the same time, it kind of doesn't. And, you know, and then in the same breath, I'll say this doesn't matter and I don't care and also be mad that it's graded one thing or another. You know what I mean? So it kind of doesn't matter, but at the same time, it kind of does. Locally, there's been an interesting thing because Cooper's Rock has been so stiff in some areas. The newer stuff was a little bit more modern. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't say it was like soft, but it's it was just more consistent. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's at, at Cooper's. I mean, there's V5s I can't even do the moves on, and I'm climbing well into double digits now. Mm -hmm. I would expect to be able to do a V5 or warm up on a V5 a few times before trying a project, but I mean, I can't even do the moves. So it, it goes from that to being like, oh, this is a nice warm up, or this is a forever project, you know, and where is, they're both the same. Like, how do you know? Yeah. And, you know, Seneca is like this too, five, nine plus, what is, how much plus? Yeah. What is the plus adding? I remember I climbed a uh, high test and anybody that's climbed high test at Seneca knows what that thing is like. And I climbed it to try to warm up to climb the bell the, uh. the same day. The bell is the famous, like scary 12A mm -hmm. uh, with big runouts. And I did high tests and I got really pumped and I almost fell at 5.9. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, I don't know if I'm ready to try like R-rated, X-rated 5.12. And then I did the 5.12 on my first try and I was like, those felt the same. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand the difference. Yeah. What is the difference? So 5.9 plus can mean a number of things and V5 can mean a number of things here. But I'm of the uh, opinion that the grid is different for different people. Mm. And I've noticed this a lot, maybe because I complain about my height a lot, but I notice it because the majority of the developers here are all above six foot. Oh. Actually... I think all of them are, are six foot or taller here. Mm -hmm. The people that have been really consistently developing and I'm five foot five. Mm -hmm. And so we climb things drastically different. Oftentimes we're not doing the same moves or even touching the same holds. Right. So I think it doesn't make sense to call things the same grade. I think personal grades kind of make more sense. I don't even think consensus grades make sense because then you only get the consensus of the average size individual. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you don't get people on either end of the spectrum because there's some routes that if you're like six four there's no way you're using my beta mm -hmm. and it's going to be way harder for you and then there's others that you know there's no way i'm doing their beta and it doesn't even go like mm -hmm. just there's no way i could do it that way yeah and so i think it's fair for the person that is doing the really scrunchy boulder and is really tall to take a higher grade than for me getting in that scrunch position it's not so hard mm -hmm. or doing the big span mm -hmm. i think it's fair for me to take a higher grade doing a big span that somebody else can just reach through really easily. Yeah. That's my opinion. I think it's personal. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting to me um, as a very short person myself. <laughs> yeah. I think there's like a really interesting conversation about grades happening. And I, I find that, that that's very nuanced. Interesting. Because mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are either like grades are this way or just ditch them who cares. Like we're just not going to even think about grades and like having this more like individualized take on grades is yeah. interesting yeah. i think that's more more of a fair way to do it and so in, in, anyway in my guidebook if i ever actually get to publish it it notes that like hey this is going to be this difficulty if you don't meet the height requir requirement to do this move mm. but uh if you have to do this other beta it's going to be this difficulty so yeah. because i hated as a new climber going from the gym and being like I can climb V8 and then going to the New River Gorge and not be able to do the moves on 12A. Yeah. But 12A, the New River Gorge means a lot of things, much in the same way that V5 or 5.9 plus does Seneca. Mm -hmm. And especially considering that many of those 12As were done by Doug Reed, who's super tall. Mm -hmm. And I've climbed with him recently. He's a lot taller than me. Yeah. <laughs> and we will not climb anything the same way. So looking back, it makes sense. But I would get on something thinking I was doing a warm up and put myself in a physically dangerous position. And I don't want that to happen. Mm -hmm. So when I'm grading something, I keep that in mind as well. Mm -hmm. When I'm grading something in the gym too, like mm -hmm. route setting, I would make sure that 
I, I don't want to get somebody's, I don't want to get somebody thinking like, oh, I climbed 512 in the gym and go to the New River Gorge trying to climb 512 and like break their legs because mm-hmm. yeah. that could happen for sure. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I also, I, this is somewhat related, but I'm, you know, as I got into climbing more and more, I like, so initially very much had this reaction where I was like, if it says Ricci in the description or Dino, I am not doing it. And then like, I got on so many things because my friends were asked me, get on things that were Ricci. And what they meant was like, there is alternative beta. I just need to figure it out. And it's like a micro death cream, but I could do it. Yeah. And, and like, does that mean anything different about the grade or like that's kind of a question. And I think that too many people write things off because they're like, Oh, that is either too scrunchy or too reachy. And they're just like, how about you just like, don't think about, Oh, well, everyone says it's V5 and just think about like for you, mm-hmm. maybe it's challenging a different way. Yeah. And like, if we had a more expansive idea of that, you know, yeah. people, would have people do need to think about it. And, and like, what is it for you? The main issue is, is like, knowing what to try or whatnot mm-hmm. that's that's the main issue i see with grades because you can try something with the goal of it being a project and the grid doesn't matter really that much because yeah. mm-hmm. it's going to be a project but the the bigger issue is what am i going to warm up on what am i going to yeah i only have one day here i want to climb things mm-hmm. and have success i don't want to i don't want to climb the 512 not knowing that that 512 is the hardest 512 in the universe <laughs> you know, I want to just go and have a good time. So I think the guidebook authors have a really big responsibility in that too. Yeah. Yeah. So as you're talking about the guidebook, I'm wondering, have you started with like doing the deep dive into the history of the area? Can you tell us a little bit about that? I'm sure um, that'll go into the guidebook a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. I don't have as much info on it. I know there's been a lot of players mm-hmm. in, in the history of the area and I mostly have been documenting the newer stuff mm-hmm. in the rest of the Chi Canyon, not like Cooper's Rock proper. Cooper's Rock proper, you know, the, the actual park side of it was kind of where the majority of the original development was going on. That and and uh, Woodland Walls on Route 7, mm-hmm. which is not very far from here. And, you know, once the New River Gorge became a thing, everybody kind of just moved there. So most of the stuff I have in my book is focused on things that I was around for. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, at least I know the people personally that were developing the stuff. So I I guess I don't have tons and tons of history, but I can tell you that, you know, the original developers, they kind of migrated after the newer record started becoming a thing and that left this big gap for the newer generation to start filling in. Yeah. I mean, that's fascinating. I had no idea that kind of Cooper's was around before the new became a thing. I kind of yeah. always thought that the new was like one of the early places. Yeah. Well, because the Pittsburgh folks were climbing here, mm. it's way closer mm-hmm. um, than the new. And then once, the new became a thing. It's like, well, we can drive two and a half hours further. Mm-hmm. For me, you know, I'm, I'm married. My wife doesn't climb. I want to be able to, to have dinner with her when I get back after climbing. So mm-hmm. I, it's easier for me to just climb a local project and come back home uh, than it is to be gone every weekend projecting something down there and not have any family time. Mm-hmm. That doesn't really seem like a, a good choice for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's also why I've focused here. Mm-hmm. Do you have any crazy stories from climbing, like animal encounters, crazy animal encounters, almost like near misses sort of thing? I do. Yeah, I'll just have to think about it. Yeah, I don't know if I should say any of them. Oh. <laughs> Might be judged heavily. Oh no! I don't have any interesting animal encounters actually. Okay. Let's see. I can tell you uh, a near miss story from somebody else that I witnessed in Seneca. Sure. Uh, which was really alarming. <laughs> I've been told Seneca has this this um, this idea of the perma gumby uh-huh. that I, I know people try not to say that word because they don't want to marginalize new climbers. But anyway, there's this thing that happens at Seneca for whatever reason because it has lots of easy track climbs that you get people that are climbing for 25 years, or, or at least they say they've been climbing for 25 years. And they still have not progressed like one bit at all in, in their in their skill set. And I don't mean physically, I mean the rope management and safety and that stuff. So, you know, I once saw a guy recently where he was playing with a non-locking carabiner 
and he had it just his whole belay setup was all jack up he was doing a normal top rope away with a non-locking carabiner redirected through his anchor instead of blank in guide mode yeah um then i i showed him guide mode and he did that with non-locking carabiners and i was like you can't you can't do this but that was not so much the issue <laughs> compared to his rappel setup which was far more treacherous he was climbing with his wife and he he had her set up with the prusik and everything. He did not extend to the rappel, hmm. um, but the prusik was about a foot and a half long. So it would just get sucked into the device and fail immediately. And I said, look, you know, I don't want to like mess with your stuff. I'm, I'm not trying to pick on you, but uh, your wife's going to die. <laughs> if she goes off that ledge, she's going to die. Yeah. The second that she, that her foot slips or something and she goes hands free, that's going to fail. And he's like, well, you, she's going to be pushing the, pushing the prusik down and that's how it works and no no it's gonna get sucked in and it's gonna be bad so anyway i made him fix it and the second his wife goes over the ledge both of her feet slip and she goes hands-free like this against the wall and the prusik holds because i made him change it but had he not i mean she would have just been done yeah you know so i see a lot of that sound good so anyway see qualified instruction <laughs> find somebody that knows what they're doing not that not someone that says they know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. I'm someone that definitely knows what they're doing. YouTube University doesn't work for this one. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I do have other crazy stories. I'm just not 100 if I want. If I want to be willing to I had I had one where I I was um, soloing in Linville Gorge. Okay. I did some five eight, and I, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but I want to say the name of the route was like Second Chance or something, <laughs> which is really ironic. Yeah. So anyway, I like. I might be wrong on the name, but for some reason, that's the name that comes to mind. I, I pulled over a roof and grabbed a pretty good hold. And it was like a 5.8 plus, it was the old school 5.8. So you don't know what the plus means. Yeah. And I wasn't being challenged or anything. It was nothing hard, but I pulled this roof. I swung my feet out over the roof to heel hook, pulled over. And then <laughs> as soon as I got over the hold that I was using, I just like peeled it away. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh. Oh, this was not, it was like a flake, but I was pulling it downwards but i realized that i could pull it just pull it straight out if i wanted to oh god <laughs> i was like oh god that was really bad yeah anyway, i don't know if i would include that one but <laughs> it's really bad i haven't really had close calls that i can think of or, or i'm just really good at blocking them out mm -hmm. uh, other other than that i guess mm -hmm. cool how do you train for all this stuff That's are you like question. Yeah. especially the campusing thing because you're on the shorter side or i train too much probably mm -hmm because I'm too motivated and need to learn how to back it, back it up a little sometimes. <laughs> but for a long time, it was just hangboarding and local boulders whenever the weather was good and just like limit bouldering all the time. Mm -hmm. But it became more complicated trying to do uh, things like 24 hours of horseshoe hell or like big wall things that I wanted to do in the summers. Mm -hmm. So to train for objectives like that i had to get a little more creative i would do endurance hangboarding uh, which is not something people think of very mm -hmm. often mm -hmm. hangboard they usually just do like max hang or something and that i would do uh like 10 three repeaters with very little rest until i get really pumped and i had a whole setup for that um and i would do i had a a little traverse wall that uh, i found locally here that luckily stays dry it's one of the only walls that doesn't seep Nice. And I made a little like 513 traverse that goes across and another 512 traverse that goes across. So I, I would do like 10 laps on that mm -hmm. um, with five minute rest in between mm -hmm. and then go run. And so I would just do that as like as a good uh, power endurance circuit or I would just uh, for arcing, I would just sew a bunch of easy routes mm -hmm. um, up and down mm -hmm. um, in one of the local areas. And that was how I prepped for horseshoe hell for a couple of years. Um, until I had the gym, mm -hmm. but even I found myself once I had the gym, I still ended up going back to do very similar things because they were familiar and I knew they worked. Yeah. But most of the time, that's that's what it's been. It's just find a project that you can train for, or, or, or find a local boulder that you could use to train for some other project. Mm -hmm. And then lately, I've, I've built a little home wall, so I've been do, doing that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I found them really bad at body tension being really extended. Yeah. So I've been trying to do. A lot of boulders like that on the home board. Cool. Yeah. No, I love asking this question for people who 
don't have a gym very close by because you have to get creative and that you're just like you know very creative answers you know people wouldn't think of (laughs) yeah actually you know if any other morgantown folks want more info on that i can give them that because i know the little traverse in and out and all the variations of it and so Mm -hmm. i found that to be a really excellent little gym awesome cool okay so two more questions where to from here What's up next? Yeah. Big dreams. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, I don't have a job, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, working very hard on, on dreams. Yeah. But in addition to working on getting a job, mm-hmm. um, all the other time is spent training. So I just lately have been training for this Feathers and Wedges project. I'm in, I'm in bubble, bubble wrap boulder and just doing a lot of resistance boulders on my home wall. I'm trying the boulder two to three times a week every time I can. And... My other goals are bigger, longer objectives. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I want to try to do um, the the cuddle out in Rocky Mountain National Park again. Give another go at that, and so that's going to involve basically just a ton of running more than anything. Yeah, <laughs> I found that the climbing was not at all the issue. It was mostly just running. Um, yeah. When you guys tried fast. it last year, did you like do it? You just or do you, what? Did, what happened? No. Did you quit or. No, I don't want to say we, we didn't really give up. We kind of just, we didn't make our time goals. Okay. Uh, so we had pre-stashed gear and food mm-hmm. at different spots. And due to a bunch of wet rock and some other logistical nightmares, we basically just had to call it because we knew we weren't going to make it to the next stash of food and water in in time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was really the main issue. That and the, the weather yeah. <laughs> was the main issue. But I think if we get a good weather window and the rock's not pouring with a waterfall yeah i think we'll be okay <laughs> yeah we, we were definitely like more than fit enough to do it i'm very confident cool um because we were doing some big days to prep for it that were quite big mm-hmm. yeah and i have some other uh big goals that are like big multi-pitch um ideas i recently i, I was just going back through some pictures I, I did mount hooker a few years ago with my friend doug and I remember seeing a wall on the backside of Hooker. Everybody goes to the north face of Hooker because it's this amazing 2,000 foot wall. Mm-hmm. Nobody goes to the backside, but there's there's a wall there that uh, at least half of the wall is like 40 degrees overhanging. And I it just is judging from a distance. I'm guessing there's three or four pitches of overhanging rock that could be climbed. Mm-hmm. And I think there could be a really amazing. I don't know, six to 10 pitch, multi-pitch route. I'm not sure how tall it is exactly, but mm-hmm. it's got to be somewhere in the 700, 2,000 feet range. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to go back and explore some more there in the winds. Horseshoe Hill again? Yeah, Horseshoe Hill is always on the radar. Yeah, we're, we're, I'm kind of just thinking about, about uh, other goals for this year because it really depends on time off. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what my job situation is going to look like. And the cuddle is a very, very large time investment. want to do a cap. I've never really gotten the chance to like really try anything hard in Yosemite. I've been there a couple days here and there and like mm-hmm. sold some easy stuff, but never like gotten to actually try hard there. So I'd like to go and do something like that. But yeah, really, they're really all just, just big multi-bitch goals. Just everything that we don't have here, I want to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like hard crack climbs and things like that. Mm-hmm. There's so many more I could think of. I'm just not yeah. sure. I want to go to Cochimo. That costs a lot of money and takes a lot of time. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. Depends on the job. The list is always longer and longer. I know, I know. And the problem is, like, as my ability gets higher and higher, there's more things that I could do that I've always wanted to do. You know? Yeah, yeah. But they take more time and more money mm-hmm. than I have. <laughs> so I can always do these local boulders. I'd like to at least start by finishing this bubble wrap project and finishing the thing at uh, Seneca. I, I bet you got it. <laughs> I'm close on both of them. So I think, yeah, matter of time. But I don't know. We'll see if, if I can do it before the season ends. Mm, yeah. Cool. Okay. So I feel like you already started doing this a little earlier, but give us the elevator pitch on West Virginia. Why is it so great? Basically, there's a bunch of just untapped gems that you know, people haven't really given the attention for uh, or the attention it deserves. I think there's good variety in the rock types here compared to other areas. It's It's pretty much all sandstone. There's a little bit of limestone as well. Some pretty hard limestone climbing potential in the eastern part of the state. But there's quartzite and we have the sandstone at the new that's really bullet hard and 
has its own like really crippy technical style. And we have the sandstone here that is a little bit softer. So it forms more pockets and more, um, more features, more intermediates for shorter climbers, mm. you know? So there's a lot of variety just within the, the types of stone really close by. So within two hours I can hit, you know, four different rock types. The downside is the weather <laughs> for sure. It's, it's humid all the time. It's mm. so humid, but when you get it good, it's really good, mm -hmm. you know, and the stuff locally here is, uh, very similar to the famous grit in the UK, mm -hmm. you know, um, and you know, that's the famous for a reason. It's really good quality and similarly very short and very to the point. Uh, so it's, it's like that here too, but I think it's mostly overlooked because of the weather. Yeah. I think if people just gave it a chance, they would find that there's some unique things. Here, yeah. Sure. Cool. This episode was hosted by me, Hannah Provo, and produced by Sierra McGivney and Shane Johnson. A big shout out to our presenting sponsor, Adidas Terex, and our supporting sponsor, Outdoor Research. Don't forget, if you're psyched on getting Andrew's guidebook, Cheat Canyon Rock, you can get a copy at CheatCanyonRock.com. Want to hear from other undercover crushers like Andrew? Subscribe to the pod and give us a review. Let us know who we should talk to next.